The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to our final episode of the China in Africa podcast for the year 2021. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we've been on vacation this week. We have a big year coming up. We're a little bit tired from the year that's been, so we're catching our breath, but as promised, we wanted to deliver our final show of the year. And as we've been doing for the past 10 years, we do our year in review, year in preview show, where we pick three topics from the year that was, and we pick one topic of what we expect to come in 2022, and we go through it. Now, as we've done in past years, we don't know what the other's topics are, so there may be some overlap, but we'll probably have different takes on it. We also don't put them in any priority of any kind. These are just three topics uh, that we think are important for what happened. But before we get to our year in review, we have to talk about Trevor Noah and The Daily Show, because this was... This was a punch to the gut, as far as I'm concerned. It was called a segment, uh, Why China is in Africa. If you don't know, now you know. On the actual thumbnail, it said China is colonizing Africa. And Kobus, when this came out, it really just sent shockwaves through the community that we're a part of in terms of scholars and analysts and journalists who follow this. And it really felt like it was just so depressing because we expect more from Trevor Noah. This is a guy who's always brought nuance and an alternative way of looking at issues that's been smart, that's been witty, oftentimes funny. Uh, this segment was dumb, poorly informed, and really not very funny. And I think it was just very depressing for a lot of us in the Africa-China watching community. Yeah, there was a lot of misinformation in the segment. He managed to pack in, uh, you know, kind of like like wrong talking points left and right. It's it was quite quite dismaying. Um, I have to admit, I was I've never been a massive fan, even during his South African stand up days. Um, is you know, I, I know it's it's a kind of a bad thing for a South African to not be supporting this South African who's kind of you know kind of who's becoming a kind of a superstar in the US. But I've always found him a little reductive, a little boring, a little mediocre. Um, I have to admit, and um, and you know, kind of, he's this. This is just really confirmed. <laughs> that a little bit um you know kind of and also just a kind of this kind of feeling that you know like i think all of all of the china africa watchers um we're reacting to this in roughly in the same way, being like, oh, this is very distressing to see all of these wrong takes and this kind of wrong information. The the you know, kind of being being kind of circulated. My my take was a little bit like we're in you know, we're in, in that kind of like phase of of the kind of US China um, conflict where I think truth is really in the th second or third seat at the back. You know, kind of like no one cares whether any of this stuff is true. They just care about talking points. Um, and he seems to have really kind of like moved into that space, which is a bit dismaying, I have to say. Well, let's take a listen to some of the highlights of the 13-minute segment that ran on YouTube. It wasn't a segment for the show. It was an online segment uh, only. And so far, as of this recording, it's received about 1.4 million views. That is no doubt going to go up. It's been steadily going up. Let's take a listen to, again, selected highlights from Trevor Noah's Why China is in Africa. If you don't know, now you know. Think of all the jobs that these projects create in Africa. And it is true. These projects do create jobs. It's just that many of those jobs are going to China. In Africa, China's estimated to have won almost half of all engineering procurement and construction contracts. But those contracts haven't come without controversy. 
the country has been accused of unfair labour practices in Africa, including bringing in its own workers instead of hiring locally. The steady influx of Chinese companies and workers have fueled accusations that wealth and opportunities are not being shared with the local community. We all do the railway work, but the Chinese constantly say we're the boss. We're the ones who run the show. That's right. When China invests in these projects, they often send over Chinese workers to Africa to fill all the best positions. And even when Africans are employed, they're treated differently, sometimes even segregated from the Chinese workers. And that's wrong. I mean, we need Chinese and African people to spend more time together because of all the hijinks they'll get up to. I mean, we haven't had a rush hour sequel in like 20 years, guys. So China is gaining control over Africa's foreign policy and its best jobs, not to mention a lot of these projects put Chinese companies in charge of Africa's prized natural resources, especially precious metals, which is super important because those precious metals are in basically every piece of advanced technology these days. I'm talking everything, cars, appliances, Elon Musk, everything. So when you start to examine this relationship as a whole, it actually starts to look a lot less like a loan and a lot more like a new kind of colonialism. And that's, that's before we even get to what happens if the loans aren't repaid. Analysts have accused them of debt colonialism. There are fears China is making loans it knows states cannot repay. Beijing may engage in what critics characterize as debt trap diplomacy, lending designed to force countries into handing over land, minerals, and strategic assets when they default on a loan. Ah, yes, the debt trap. It's like the first trap of infrastructure. China's just strutting around with its railroads hanging out. What is Africa supposed to do? Not hit the like button? I mean, say what you want about European colonizers, but at least they were upfront about it. Right, we're taking all your And if you don't like it, you can go to the UN. Oh wait, they don't exist yet, biatch. But what China's doing is a lot like terms and conditions, yeah. They know Africa can't afford not to take the deals that they offer. And then when Africa can't pay it back, the Chinese are like, right, we're taking all your And if you don't like it, read the fine print, biatch. You know what's so kind of like annoying about this is that is that you know our work has, has shown a lot, and you know kind of other people's work has, has shown that um, that in some kind of ways African governments are actually a lot more successful in, in 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 allocating work, you know, kind of like work on Chinese projects to African workers, you know, kind of so. So we recently did um, at Sire we did a, a comparative research project looking at, at Chinese, uh, you know, kind of infrastructure projects. Compare, comparing between African infrastructure projects and Southeast Asian ones, and we found that that African governments have been far more successful in actually in in allocating the the, the vast majority of jobs on these projects to African workers compared to Southeast Asia, where there's there's frequently a lot more Chinese workers being imported to do even low level jobs. So in a weird way, he just like strengthens all of these stereotypes of African you kind of you know African. Africa being a, 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 a basket case or like being so weak at governance that, you know, kind of that, that kind of outsiders just kind of run roughshod over these countries. You know, like that, those kind of stereotypes being strengthened from a place of misinformation by an African just sucks. <laughs> it, just, it just sucks. Well, and that's a good point because the fact that he's South African and the fact that he's a comedian, he's not the New York Times. He's not part of the traditional Washington beltway clique who's been propagating a lot of this for a long time, it makes it that much more credible. And it just seeps into the body politic so much more. And what he, what was impressive with a lot of people noticed was how efficient he was in compacting all of the misinformation of the past 10 years into such a short space. And it was interesting how he, the producers took very selective clips from news reports that validated it. Again, a lot of it mis misinformed. And a lot of it, it's just, again, you, you hear me struggling for words because genuinely I'm, I'm just, I'm, it's just depressing. Do you know what I mean? And, and Deborah Braudigam has expressed this over the years as well, that she keeps pushing forward and sometimes feeling like, you know, pushing that boulder up the hill and never really getting there, that, 
it just there's you don't feel like the the discourse in the US is making any progress and in so many ways now the discourse in the US feels comparable to what the discourse is in China and in China there's a party line and if you don't adhere to that party line then you're expelled from that there's very little diversity of thought on on China Africa relations in Beijing in the official discourse in China and within the media in China and the United States has always prided itself on having as we've talked about in previous shows this amazing resource of think tanks and scholars and journalists and critical thought and nuance in the discourse. And yet, we're just not seeing that. And so this is how it kind of manifests. So in the same week that Trevor Noah's piece came out on The Daily Show, there was an article in Politico talking about Somaliland and how the United States should recognize Somaliland as a way to check Chinese growing influence in the Horn of Africa. And they took a quote from uh, Piero Tozzi, who is a senior foreign policy advisor for New Jersey Republican Congressman Chris Smith. And Kobus, I want to read this quote to you. As China becomes more aggressive in pushing its debt trap model in Africa, the indebtedness of Djibouti and the transfer of control of Entebbe Airport in Uganda provide it with political leverage in these countries. Yep. <laughs> I mean, there it is. I mean, you know, for those of you who haven't been following the show very closely, the Entebbe Airport story, which was used in the Trevor Noah report as well as evidence of debt trap, simply did not happen. And and there's just no evidence to support this. And, And again, I think this plays to China's interests in the long run, because the more time that we spend focusing on these debunked myths of debt trap diplomacy, the less time we're actually focusing on the problems that do exist within the contracts that Aid Data and the China Africa Research Initiative and others have highlighted in their research. There are problems in these contracts. We know there are problems in these contracts, but yet everybody's focusing on you know, the little shiny bell over the shoulder, which doesn't mean anything. It's the wrong thing. And so it's, again, it's just yeah. absolutely, it's despairing. I mean, there's no, no other way to say it's, it. It's, it's, very, it's very funny for me always to see American think tanks, American press making, like, like moving from this, this kind of like supposition that the U.S. is so completely fundamentally different to China and that that's, that, you know, kind of that to the, that the real problem is that, 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 that you know, is, is this kind of massive gulf between the two when frequently from, from my perspective in the global south, the really, really worrying thing is that they're so similar, is that they're both obsessed with military issues, they're both, you know, kind of very, very insular, they're both like on the hook to very, to high Highly nationalist kind of populist kind of movements within the country. They're both, you know, kind of like fixated on a kind of a zero sum game. They both have very little bandwidth to deal with with kind of differences between countries in places, you know, kind of like Africa. So that for me is a really scary thing. You know, it's not the thing that oh they're so different. It's you know kind of it's it's one or the other. It's like no, they're actually really really similar, and that's the scary thing. Well, at least in the context of these kinds of discourses, there are a lot of similarities in terms of how misinformed so much of the discourse is in Beijing and so much of the discourse now is in the U.S. on the issues of these debt trap issues. Trevor Noah certainly didn't help it, and it's, it's, it's a setback. There's no, no doubt about it, and I think it depressed so many. Let me just read a, a few reactions from folks in the community who we follow, and many of you and our listeners will know who these people are. Fola Shadisule from the University of Oxford. She said on Twitter, wow, in just one clip, Trevor Noah has regurgitated all of the myths, memes, and bad takes on China in Africa. It's a pity. I used to like his show. Uh, Kai Lui, a partner in the Beijing law firm uh, Pinset Masons, really bad piece from Trevor Noah, based on misinformation and very little real understanding of China, Africa, and the BRI. Disappointed to see this from Trevor. Hannah Ryder, CEO of Development Reimagined. I have so much respect for Trevor Noah, but this is really disappointing from the Daily Show team on Africa-China relations and key challenges. So the word that we kept hearing was just disappointment, and and I, that's how I feel as well. I I'm I, unlike you, I'm I'm a bigger fan of Trevor Noah, but this one's hard to get over. So just final thoughts on this before we go on to our uh, our year interview. I think this is this is kind of part of a bigger trend, which is that I think increasingly 
you know, both on the Chinese side and on the US side, no one like there's there's a lack of interest in dealing with actual African countries, and but but a, a huge kind of investment in the rhetoric of Africa in quotes, you know. So so this is this is something that that I think one one should keep looking out for. It's like one should be very wary when Africa in quotes pop up, you know, rather than actual African places. Yeah, I want to recommend a conversation that I was fortunate enough to be a part of in last week's Seneca podcast with Jeremy Goldkorn and Kaiser Guo, and I was joined by the incomparable Ntsetse Were, and she was just on fire in this show. Kobus, I don't, did you have a chance to listen to this yet, this, this episode? Okay, it is really, listen to it just for Ntsetse's comments, and she she really went at the West and in the U.S. and Europe for their their disdain of nuance. And I think this is exactly it. So compliment your reading of the Trevor Noah clip with listening to the Seneca podcast and what Ntsetse had to say. I can't recommend it enough. She's just incredible, and she had some fantastic insights on that as well. Okay, let's get into 2021 is now in the rearview mirror. We're a week away from the end of the year. This is the time when we get together to do this show every year. I look forward to it. It's actually by far our most popular episode of the year as people want to reflect on what happened. There's so much that went down. So when we pick three issues, we're not picking necessarily the three most important things because there's so much and it varies a lot depending on where you are geographically, politically, economically in this relationship. So we're just picking three topics that stood out to us. Go ahead with topic number one for 2021 that stood out for you. Yeah, it's it's, uh, <laughs> it's right on cue. Um, the my my like third kind of rated one, um, I think, is the is the announcement that that came out of FOCAC that China will send a billion vaccine doses to Africa. Um, I think it's really it's really important but I don't think it's necessarily that important as a game changer to change the, the COVID situation in Africa so you know kind of that's because we're already in Omicron era um, and you know the, the, the efficacy of, of Chinese vaccines against Omicron is in question and some of them have been found to not be very effective at all um, so in that sense, I don't necessarily think that these billion vaccines are going to be the game changer that, that solves COVID in Africa, because, you know, obviously COVID itself is this kind of moving target that, you know, that keeps mutating. What I think it really is, why it, it's really more important is that it it just, it it shows the incredible failure that we've seen from Western countries on this issue, um, you know, and, and the kind of compound failures that, that came from, that came from kind of weakness and, and kind of like self-centeredness, you know, from the governments, complete kind of profit, profit-driven kind of cravenness from, from, from the drug companies and the way that those two things work together in order to to kind of to keep vaccines out of out of the global south. China saw this gap, it stepped into this gap, it played this game very, very effectively. Um, and in the process, it managed to then sidestep all of the very legitimate questions around China's own, you know, kind of vaccine um, provision to Africa, not least, you know, kind of that Africa has lagged very far behind compared to other parts of the global south that are more politically, you know, important to China, like Southeast Asia. And also the fact that that very little of this of this provision was actually in the form of donations, like most of it was actually sold and actually sold at pretty high prices. So China managed to like sidestep all of those issues, managed to kind of come out, you know, kind of looking like the heroes that was going to like save Africa from COVID, and you know, and in the in the process, kind of like played, I think, the West very very skillfully. Yes. Yeah, so up to date, China has distributed 115.4 million doses. That is according to Bridge Beijing. That right now is the most reliable accounting that everybody has. And you can find that over on the Bridge Consulting website at Bridge Beijing. They have a very, very interesting vaccine tracker. Uh, one follow-up point to, to the Chinese vaccines and the a- efficacy for Omicron. It turns out that it's not just Chinese vaccines, but it's the AstraZeneca shot that I received, Johnson & Johnson, uh, also Sputnik, all look like they are not very effective against Omicron. Only the mRNA vaccines made by Pfizer and Moderna seem to have even moderate effectiveness. There is a real concern right now, and I have to be honest with you, this is a very personal story for me because uh, I am now no longer protected. And so if the developing world has to start over again with their whole vaccine drive to re 
inoculate people with boosters and whatnot because the shots that we've taken to date simply don't work anymore. That is, that's terrifying to think about. I mean, that is absolutely terrifying to think about. In some ways, then, Africa, the fact that they've been deprived of vaccines up until this date may actually be a benefit because you can put new vaccines out that do deal with Omicron when that is available. So to your point, Kobus, the Chinese 1 billion vaccine donation is questionable now in terms of efficacy. But in terms of the optics, I couldn't agree with you more. It really is putting pressure on the U.S. and Europe and Japan and other G7 countries to be able to step up and to actually do something. And you would think, Cobus, this is, again, I, I just maybe I'm losing touch with how the world works these days. But you would think that they would see this in their own self-interest, given that the variants tend to come from the places where they don't have enough vaccines. And I just, I don't understand why Western countries and Japan and Korea and some of the wealthier countries don't see it in their interest to make sure they're flooding the developing world with vaccines. But you're right. Well, the thing is, they, they're not even, they're not even, you know, kind of really kind of flooding their own poor regions with vaccines. You know, kind of the, 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 the whatever variant of coming after Omicron could come from this kind of under vaccinated global south, but it could easily come from Wyoming. You know, it's like these kind of areas where, you but know, where, where yet, they though. have man, it's failed. They haven't yet, but, you know. But yeah, but the most of the variants have come from South America and Africa and others. But so. do we know that really? Because, you you know, because the thing is, you know, the, um, like we now assume that Omicron came from, quote unquote, kind of from, from South Africa, simply because the South African, Southern African scientists were the first to report it. But then it became clear that it was already like prevalent in large parts of the global north anyway. So who knows where they come from? The, the thing is, you know, kind of the, 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 the failure of vaccinations, both at home and abroad, is the issue, you know, kind of not only abroad. So I'm going to put for my topic, which is an adjunct to yours on vaccines, COVID-19, just as a story. And when we talk about the needs in Africa, too much of the attention right now, I think, is being focused on vaccines, when it's, in fact, non-vaccine COVID aid in many ways is more important. And, and when you talk to public health officials, especially here in Southeast Asia, the chronic shortages are in oxygen, are in training of skilled nurses who can execute and care for medical supplies, PPE, all of the infrastructure for COVID-19, all of that needs to be done as well. And in many global South countries, here in Southeast Asia, as well as in, in many parts of Africa, the public health systems are at their breaking points. And we haven't even hit some of the peaks that they had in India, for example, earlier this year. So when we talk about supporting the global South, there is so much more that can be done in, in, beyond just vaccines, oxygen being one of the critical resources. And so I'd like to see more of that talked about in 2022. But again, that, as you pointed out, none of this was on the agenda for the most part as any major priority. Sure, USAID and some of the European aid and whatnot, and even the Chinese aid were talking about it. But if the Chinese are going to step up next year and vaccines may not be the most effective tool, then other public health support infrastructure is also going to be very important. But COVID-19 was the big story in Africa, as it was everywhere. I think the Chinese, as you pointed out, got a lot more credit than they deserved for their vaccine support and even their PPE. They just happened to be where nobody else was. And, and I think that speaks more to the fact that the traditional powerhouses in global aid have stepped away from that responsibility and the Chinese stepped in, but they didn't step in, in my view, with anything really that significant to affect the outcome. 116 million doses is what about 50 million people for a continent of 1.2 billion people that doesn't change the equation so i think they're getting a lot more publicity and credit than they deserve but hey to their credit they're there and if nothing else this is an optics game this is politics and on the political side i think you've pointed this out the chinese came up uh, a winner on this one and 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 but i would like to see african countries to stop being so polite your president president ramaphosa they speak in these vague generalities okay they need to start calling calling out countries and names a lot more. I think they need to be more assertive, more aggressive, and, and really just start hitting them. 
Yeah, I agree because because what we saw when Omicron launched was open racism from from Europe from European publications particularly, and you know kind of the, 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 the there is no way to not characterize the the kind of the the slapping of 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 travel bans on African countries while other countries with proven Omicron you know presence did not suffer from those same bans. There's no way to to kind of characterize that as not racist. You know, so so what what we're seeing here is. The, the the what what was very revealing about the about the omicron variant was this knee jerk you know kind of racist response from you know kind of from europe and the us um you know and 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 that i think was was really revealing and it's not nearly pointed out enough Let's go to our second top story of 2021. What did you have on your list? For me, the second one was the announcement by Xi Jinping earlier this year that they're stopping uh, coal financing. Um, it's you know, in, in an earlier we, we had an earlier conversation with with Patreon subscribers in which I at that moment I, I was thinking that would probably be my biggest story of the year, um, but. You know, I think you know. I think it is it's really important, but 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 also its direct effect in Africa is mo- is, is concentrated in a few countries rather than across the entire continent. Um, I think it, it's really important because it it shows a kind of a pivot, you know, kind of towards towards other kinds of financing, but it raises a lot of questions that we haven't answered yet. Um, we, we don't know whether the these kind of old coal, coal investments that are now being cancelled, whether they're going to be replaced. Um, we don't know whether African governments have the projects ready to go. Um, so this is, this is, it reveals kind of coal and other kinds of like fossil fuel buyers within African governments. Um, and you know it raises a lot of questions about about where Chinese kind of financing for this kind of infrastructure is going to go at a moment when we also saw the announcement of of a kind of a pivot towards greater cooperation on green energy transitions. Um, you know, but none of those have been have been kind of clarified yet. So so it, it raises more questions than it answers. But I think it was a really momentous kind of moment. You know, a real kind of like okay, the the oil tanker ha is is turning kind of you know kind of moment. So President Xi. Jinping's announcement that he made at the UN General Assembly over the summer really capped a trend that started in the beginning of the year where they basically had phased out coal financing in Africa as they have in other parts of the world. This is a trend that's been underway for a number of years. Energy financing for power plant infrastructure and other initiatives in places like Latin America from the Chinese policy banks has been steadily going down for years. So again, this was something that we've seen building up. Xi Jinping's announcement did put an exclamation point on it, and it really confirmed what the data has been telling us. But it is very interesting. The Chinese have been building quite a bit in the new energy space in Africa, but they have been at a much smaller scale than the large-scale oil and gas projects and also the coal projects. Now, hydro is a little bit of a different beast here because hydro does kind of technically qualify as renewable, but it has a very heavy environmental footprint on it. Do you count hydro in the category of new energy? In pure emissions terms, yes, um, but the, the, it has its own kind of emissions story because the you know what we're seeing due to climate change, we're seeing increasingly kind of volatile um, you know rainfall patterns in Africa. So you you have a lot of a lot of times a lot of stretches of drought during which hydroelectric facilities don't produce the the, the level of electricity they have to, and then floods which which you know kind of endangers hydroelectric. Uh, infrastructure so frequently these you know kind of they have to be backed up by something else when you know kind of in in a moment of drought and that then frequently means that these countries default back to the fossil fuel so so it's not a situation that you build a hydro plant and then it solves your your fossil fuel problem um you know solar and wind you know kind of solve those problems a lot more effectively um what the, the the big question for me is is whether african governments can pivot towards renewables quickly enough like i think i think what we see you know we've seen reports over the last while showing that that how few actual turn, like projects are ready to run in africa like renewable projects are ready to run like very few um, and i think what we what what this this pivot is is revealing is is a really big failure on the african side to 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 you know to set up a kind of a a, a project pipeline for renewables even though we've seen you know it's it's been clear for for 10 years that this is where 
where everyone is heading. Um, you see African governments still doubling down on gas, on oil, on you know, and, and trying to kind of eke out that last little bit of profit from from that, you know, before the entire world goes up in flames. So, um, you, you know, so in that sense, like there's a real lack of vision and a lack of capacity, I think, on the African side um, that is now becoming kind of embarrassingly clear. Um, but, you know, it'll be very interesting to see also whether whether the state-owned enterprises that were driving all of this conventional power infrastructure in Africa in, from the Chinese side, um, and with it this kind of like financing infrastructure like the state banks and so on, what that's going to be replaced with, you know, kind of because because the, the, the renewable players in China is a different set of companies, um, there's other kind of financing involved and, and you know, kind of, so, so it'll be interesting to see whether they step up, but then even more challengingly, I think it'll be really interesting to see whether African governments have anything to offer or to, or to request. What, what do you think? Well, if you want to get a sense of what it will look like in terms of what you talked about, the replacement, let me take you to Garissa, Kenya, which is in northern Kenya. That was a region that was historically cut off from the rest of the national grid. Back in 2020, the China Jiangxi Corporation for International Economic and Trade Cooperation, uh, they are one of the big Chinese contractors in Africa. They go by the acronym CJIC, if you want to look them up. They're very active in a number of African countries. They built a $122 million US dollar, 50 megawatt solar power plant in Garissa. And I think this in many ways is the model going forward. So we've talked about how $2 billion coal power plants in Zimbabwe will be replaced by much smaller solar plants. This is what it looks like. The risk is lower at $122 million rather than billions of dollars. It does play to Chinese strengths in terms of solar panels and whatnot. This is the kind of project that I think the Chinese want to finance going forward. It, it has an immediate benefit because Garissa now is plugged into the national grid, so you can get an ROI on this. I've heard from some other people that this project in particular has a number of problems with it. So as with most infrastructure projects, it's not as simple as what it looks like from the outside. But the broad contours of this deal, to me, represents the trend of what we're seeing in terms of Chinese energy infrastructure financing in Africa in the tens of millions, low hundreds of millions, it is green. Chinese contractors are building it. So that might be a, a preview to the future. Yeah, another another data point I'd, I'd suggest people look out for is nuclear, particularly nuclear in relation to Russia. Like we've seen over the last year or two, there's been a lot of activity from Russian companies, like state-owned um, nuclear companies, trying to promote civilian use of nuclear power in, in Africa. Um, and I think they're getting quite a quite a kind of a friendly ear. And that could complicate this this kind of mix of things. Um, and of course, you know, nuclear is a complicated long-term investment, you know. Um, so, and, but I think in lots of ways, very, uh, one that's very attractive to many African governments. So, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, kind of how, which other players step into the kind of, you know, the renewable energy kind of field in Africa in the next while. Well, let's go to my number two story for the year, and I'll put this under debt and loans. So to your point about vaccines, how the, in the, the G7 more or less kind of wrote off the Global South and Africa in particular, I've been saying the same thing on the debt issue, and I've just been blown away, just absolutely stupefying to watch how the G20 in particular, but also Paris Club, the IMF, the World Bank, uh, have not done enough on developing world debt. And the deferrals that they've been talking about, which is the DSSI, the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, only kicks the can down the road. David Malpass, who's the president of the World Bank, he's talked about we need to address the underlying debt stock because a lot of these countries are simply, they're bending under the weight of these debts. There's just no other ways of saying it. We're starting to see the real consequences of the fact that this issue is not being dealt with. And while everybody seems to focus a lot of attention on the Chinese, it is the private creditors, it's the multilateral creditors, everybody is more or less in the same boat on this. There has been no movement for the most part in 2021 on, on any meaningful debt reform or debt restructuring. And despite the pleas, the constant pleas from people in the global south that something has to be done, nothing really has been done. We've talked about over the course of the year at the various G20 summits, how they talked a lot of flowery rhetoric, they put it in their communiques, but they did nothing. And in fact, at the last G20 summit in Rome, they didn't even address it. And so you can see this is not a priority for Washington, London, and Brussels. 
It, it's just not. I mean, they're, they, you know, they literally copied and pasted the text from the July finance minister's meeting into the summit in the fall. It was a copy-paste, and nothing's happening. And so I think that, to me, was one of the big stories of the year. Do you foresee major defaults coming in 2022? I don't know about defaults. I mean, I don't know, like, for example, a country like Ethiopia right now, given the current difficulties that it's facing and the fact that its economy has suffered considerably because of the ongoing conflict, I don't know how they would generate the needed revenue to service their debts. Whether that results in a default or whether the Chinese and other creditors kind of pull back and do restructure the terms, what they aren't doing is they aren't forgiving or relieving any of the debt burden. So they're just kicking the can down the hill. So they're going to be obligated to pay these debts eventually. Again, one of the things that's really stood out this year is why the China Exim Bank is insisting on the repayment of the SGR loans, the standard gauge railway loans from Kenya. And while other creditors have agreed to debt deferrals for Kenya. And we spoke with Andy Mock, who is at the China Center for Globalization. He wasn't entirely sure. Again, these are all independent actors in China. Oftentimes, people will assign a lot more coordination between the policy banks, the foreign ministry, the commerce ministry. So maybe... uh, there's a reason why the Exim Bank is really forcing this loan to be repaid more than what they're doing in places like Angola and Zambia and others. So hard to see if there's going to be any defaults. What we do see happening, though, right now, and this is what we've been tracking all year now in our coverage, is key African currencies now are devaluing because of the debt because they're draining their foreign exchange reserves to repay the debt in dollars. The strength of the U.S. dollar is also impacting the value of these currencies. That's making it more expensive to service these debts. That then is impacting the budget priorities elsewhere for these governments. And there's this vicious cycle now that we're getting stuck in. So whether it's a default or these cycles of cash, hard currency leaving the country to service debts, and then insufficient capital for the economy itself to pay for public health, education, all these new things, infrastructure, because the financing isn't there. I don't know. So, and at the same time, a lot of governments are now going back out onto the euro bond market to borrow more because they need to get capital. And unfortunately, we're seeing also that they're using those euro bond loans in some of the worst ways possible, which is to fund the administration of the government. Yeah. Yeah, that's bad news. That is the worst way because that does not generate growth. So that's not like building a piece of infrastructure. That's not building schools. It's paying salaries and things like that. And that is really troubling as well. And so so I think, uh, I, don't, I don't know about defaults. I was expecting more defaults after we saw what happened in Zambia in late 2019, I think it was. No, 2020, when Zambia defaulted on a $42.5 million note to Eurobond holders. We have not seen any other defaults since then, if I recall. Yeah. So defaults, they've been able to engineer around a default. But all of the other pressures that are building on these economies, on top of the, the supply chain pressures, so the same pressures that we in the U.S. and elsewhere are facing related to inflation as a result of the supply chain disruptions, Africans and developing countries are feeling much more. So the cost of importing goods is, has been going up. That's leading to inflation. That's eating away at disposable income. So these are all interconnected. Yeah, it's, it's really, really worrying. Um, you know, it's like it, it comes on top of, of this kind of dilemma that um, that people like Hannah Ryder, for example, has, has pointed out is that on the one hand, the on the one hand, certain African economies are are very debt laden and and in danger of debt distress. On the other hand, many of these countries also have a massive financing uh, deficit. You know, kind of they 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 need financing for for many different issues, particularly for infrastructure. So you know, the the, the it, it becomes this, this really existential question of like, how does Africa kind of move forward without sinking itself under debt? Um, and you know, it's it's just yeah, it's, it's it's really it's really distressing. So, what is your third and final highlight, low light of twenty twenty one? It's it's a complicated one. It's a kind of a compound one, which is essentially FOCAC, the the big FOCAC summit that that happened um, at the end of November. Um, 
It's it's focus is is always a complicated thing, but like this time more than usual. It's it, I was really struck by seeing incredibly like like China Africa researchers. I really respect both making the case that this constitutes a, a kind of a withdrawal or a reduction of Chinese engagement and argue, others arguing that it constitutes an, incre- an increase in Chinese engagement and both of them making the case very convincingly. Um, you know, so so it's... I think I think we're still waiting for FOCAC to actually kind of shake out in terms of to to, to understand exactly what it, what it, what it constitutes. But it seems to... You know, at the very least, it seems to kind of show a pivot um, in the relationship, a kind of a, a maturing is maybe one word, or at least another kind of step of the relationship as it kind of moves into into this new decade. And it seems to be setting kind of new parameters for for engagement, including um, you know, kind of a, a, a strong reduction of 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 the influence of previous models that we've seen re- to be really dominant and, and what we, we tended to think of as constituting the, the China-Africa relationship. You know, for example, a policy banks lending huge amounts of money for infrastructure projects that are then built by Chinese state-owned enterprises in African countries. That 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 model used to be thought of as the entire relationship, basically. Now we're seeing that relationship rapidly kind of like morphing into something new. Um, and FOCAC kind of... Pre- provided a lot of kind of vague indications of where they're going but very little yet of what it's going to be in some ways it's going to be smaller than it used to be but in other ways the the number of actors involved are is is rapidly growing the kind of level of complexity of the relationship is is really increasing um and we're seeing you know kind of the, the kind of spaces that the relationship is moving into really kind of expanding across you know across a much wider kind of range of engagement than China had say 10 20 years ago and i think in many ways a much wider range of engagement than any other african external partner um you know so so in terms of investment in terms of trade um china is moving into some kind of new space in relation to africa that i i think um both european partners and american partners don't even really have an idea of what that's going to be. Um, and so so in that sense, it's like we don't know what it portends yet, but it's clearly portending something. You know, so, so in that sense, it's this kind of like big mystery that is FOCAC. Um, what, what, what do you think? Yeah, I was surprised by this shift and how the, the Africa-China relationship in so many ways is evolving much faster than I expected. I didn't expect the the sharp pivot at FOCAC this year that we got. And I think in many respects, the FOCAC agenda that emerged, what we saw, does reflect African input into the Dakar Action Plan. There were a lot of African priorities articulated in that. Again, the vaccines being one of them, the focus on private investment, the focus on agriculture and exports. I think those are key African priorities that were reflected in that. Interesting because the week before FOCAC, we saw the white paper that came out from the state council, which is the equivalent of China's cabinet, which is the highest policymaking body in China. And I think the combination of the the white paper, which is a purely Chinese document, no input from the African side, combined with the Dakar Action Plan, are interesting reading to evaluate kind of where we are. I was speaking with a Spanish journalist earlier this week and, and talking about it. And I guess the point that I kind of came to about this was the dynamism right now that's in the Africa-China relationship that we simply do not see in other partnerships that that Africa has with the outside world. Yes, I have to say Africa's Africa's relationships with Europe and the and the US looks dead at the moment, like dead dead. Like there's no action, there's no inspiration, like like they don't even seem to like each other very much. You know, it's like there's this all of this kind of high-flown rhetoric about all kinds of initiatives but that I think most Africans don't credit with any that they have any kind of basis in reality. Um, yeah, it's like it's it's really, really moribund, you know, kind of in, in, on that side. And there's nothing coming out of the think tanks. There's nothing coming out of the policy circles. There is no white paper that articulates here's what we stand for. There's no 40 page action plan. Please do not misunderstand me. I am not saying this to celebrate the Chinese and the CCP and all that stuff. What I am saying is that you can you can see for yourself that the Chinese are coming to the table in Africa with enthusiasm. 
And you don't see that coming out of the U.S. and, and, and Europe, as, as you pointed out. Yeah, enthusiasm and new ideas. Whereas I haven't, I haven't heard a new idea coming from Washington on Africa for years, actually. Well, that's it. And, and that's one of the things that I've been so excited in tracking in the daily writing that we've been doing, which is that it's not only just coming from the, the central government in Beijing, which the state council white paper document is. That is a reflection from the central government in Beijing. One of the things when you look carefully at the Africa-China relationship the way that we do is you see a lot of activity and engagement coming at the provincial and at the municipal level. So a lot from Chongqing, from Shanghai, Hunan. I mean, the stuff coming out of Hunan, the frequency of, of what's coming out of Hunan province is amazing. It really is amazing. There is nothing comparable to Hunan in, uh, in, in the U.S. and Europe. Yeah. I mean, right now, they're still in the process at the White House of formulating an Africa policy. Yeah. So they literally have nothing. <laughs> and, and again, and they're just continually behind. Just to be clear here, and this is why it's important for Africa to look at what's happening in other regions. It's the same situation here in Southeast Asia. When Antony Blinken came to Southeast Asia, his speech was very similar to the one that he gave in, in Africa. We don't want you to choose sides. We're not being anti-China. We're not going to talk about China. I mean, it really was just scratch out Africa and put in ASEAN, and you would have had very, very similar. A little bit more emphasis on security out here, but it was, it, it, and it was greeted in much the same way of with a giant collective yawn. And, and, and what was interesting was that here in ASEAN, where the Chinese are building facts on the ground, which is the $6 billion railway in Laos, new railways potentially into Thailand, huge new free trade zones. I mean, those are tangible economic initiatives that you can see and touch and feel. So starting next year in, what, a week, the world's largest free trade zone starts with RCEP, which is a Chinese-led equivalent or alternative to the CPTPP. And you just don't see that in, in Africa from the U.S. or from other partners. So that, to me, is what FOCAC represented. I think it's a stupid, stupid, stupid discussion is to measure the relationship on whether it's $40 billion or $50 billion or $60 billion in terms of the value of the FOCAC package. Because at the end of the day, there is not a single other partner, including the European Union, that is bringing that kind of cash to the table in a three-year time period. Yeah, yeah, no one. No one. I mean, so we look at Global Gateway, they're talking about 50 billion euros, but worldwide, okay? Worldwide. So that's not just in Africa. These 40 or 50 or 60 billion, however, the, however much the FOCAC kind of comes out to, is a dedicated Africa initiative. That's a huge amount of money in this day and age. Again, I say this less to praise the Chinese and more to criticize the others, because at the end of the day, I don't think you can... You talk about the Chinese retrenching from Africa when they're dropping $40 billion or $50 billion of cash for the next three years. That's not a retrenchment. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay, so my last highlight, very different than yours. And funny, and we do this every year where about two out of three we totally agree on and we have more or less in line than in our last one, we, we take a different direction. I think the Democratic Republic of the Congo stood out this year. And, and I think this was a huge year. And I just noticed this from my daily writing on, on Africa-China relations. The DRC just came up every single day. And I think it's interesting from a political point of view, from a security point of view, from obviously the resources, the economics, and then the diplomacy. So let's talk about what's happened in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. In many ways, it emerged as Okay, you corrected me a couple of weeks ago when I said it was the most consequential you know, relationship that China has in Africa today. I will modify that. It's one of the most consequential relationships, but it is certainly among the most important. And it has emerged in many ways as a bellwether for future Africa-China ties. And it shows in so many ways what we've talked about with the team from Bloomberg, who we interviewed a couple of weeks ago, how Congolese civil society is asserting itself, how African political leaders are asserting agency in this relationship and getting results. When President Felix Chesikedi started to push back on the Chinese for these mining contracts, instead of getting a reaction from the Chinese foreign ministry in Beijing that was putting the United States at the center of this and the usual fiery rhetoric that comes out, Spokesman Zhao Lijian was very accommodating. 
again, you got a very different reaction. Director General Wu Peng of the Chinese Foreign Ministry, China's top diplomat in Africa, he published a tweet which was fascinating, saying that in the Far East, where miners have been operating illegally, that he said that they will be treated harshly or severely under Chinese law. Again, we don't know if that's true, but the rhetoric is is different, much more accommodating. The effort that Chinese mining companies have gone to sway public opinion in the Congo, again, using some very effective propaganda techniques and paid media buys and whatnot, I think it's been effective in some respects. And it has been so interesting to watch how all of these politics are playing out. But the DRC did emerge this year as an absolutely pivotal country. And in many ways, it's because of the cobalt. And that cobalt has become the center of attention in the United States and Europe because of the supply chain for this incredibly important metal that is used to build batteries that power electric vehicles and other electronics. So the DRC for me was an absolutely fascinating country to watch. It's going to be a a, a very important issue going forward in 2022 because of the presidential elections in 2023, where there is this symbiotic relationship between the mining industry and President Felix Chesikedi and his party for re-election. Yeah, yeah, that 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 kind of puts a, a, a real kind of ticking t- ticking clock on on this relationship. You know, kind of so it puts a lot of pressure on on, on Chisikedi to to have something to show, both in terms of reform and in terms of actual infrastructure provision. You know, kind of from from the Sikomin deal. Um, so you know, kind of that that that's a, it, it 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 provides a very interesting kind of like timeline to track. I think also the Congo has frequently kind of functioned as this weird like kind of Rorschach test. You know, kind of in which everyone everyone's kind of true intentions get revealed, whether they like it or not. You know, kind of so so it is very funny to see, for example, you know, kind of like like big outfits like the New York Times suddenly discovering the fact that that cobalt is is a dirty industry now that the Chinese. Are so heavily involved in in the Congo, even though you know, kind of Western Western companies have been very complicit in these abuses through for many years, and also to suddenly like see this kind of narrative of like, oh, it's Western companies versus Chinese companies, whereas we we know that that Western companies and Chinese companies have worked together in the past to try and defeat you know kind of earlier versions of these these kind of initiatives to kind of to force more refining in in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So you know, so so it, it's it's this kind of like you know, it's kind of another zone, you know, kind of as as is the entire kind of Africa-China relationship where everyone sees what they want to see. Um, you know, so it's really, I think it'll, it's it's the, the fact that we've been tracking it on such a kind of daily basis, you know, I think that work will, will obviously continue and, and will strengthen, I think, in, in the coming year. And it's so important to do because, because you know, uh, you know, people are so happy to just believe what they want to believe in relation to the DRC. So we've got some wonderful shows scheduled in January with some amazing scholars and experts, and uh, that's going to look forward at 2022. But let's get a jump on on the new year. And in our forecasting for what's ahead, let's take COVID off the table because we know that COVID is going to be the most important thing and how this pandemic evolves, whether the vaccines are effective or not, whether the economy related to COVID is going to improve or not. So let's kind of assume that COVID is going to be the most prominent story of the year and all of the offshoots from COVID. But with that in mind, what is the one story that you're looking for for next year to be the most consequential? For me, I kind of I, my shorthand for this is Africa versus Africa. So the you know what what I think like 2021 has been a year I think of a lot of of kind of big engagement kind of initiatives with Africa. So we had FOCAC, we had you know kind of we had COP twenty six, we had Global Gateway announced, we had Build Back Better World announced. Uh, okay, well, the better world has a longer, longer provenance, but you know we we saw the kind of new investment of energy into it. Um, next year, I think both in the US and in China, like people are going to be very distracted and very focused on domestic issues because in in China there's the the big party congress coming up late late in 2022, where everyone is expecting you know the the Xi Jinping to formally step into his third term. Um, and we see midterms coming up in the US. Um, so I think Africa is kind of like actual engagement of Africa is going to fall off the map. Um, what we will see 
instead is a lot of rhetorical engagement with Africa in quotes. You know, kind of so. So I think the Trevor Noah thing has been is, is the kind of first warning shot of what of what we're going to see a lot more, which is a lot of like fake hand wringing about Africa and like what China's doing in Africa or what the US is doing in Africa, and very little engagement with actual African problems in actual African countries. I'm going to expand on that, and I I think the US China Africa relationship is going to be consequential next year, but in part because we're going into what I think is going to be a very tumultuous year, politically, geopolitically, also climate change. And Africa has got to do better. And African countries and foreign policy makers have got to do better at formulating what they want out of each of their partners. And again, we have not seen very sophisticated policies coming from Durko in South Africa or the Kenyan foreign ministry or the Nigerian foreign ministry uh, towards China. And they're going to have to get smarter on China. There's no two ways about it. Because as you pointed out, Africa is going to continue to fall in priority as the big powers look inwards at their own domestic political conditions, but at the same time as they confront each other geopolitically. So when we talk to Andy Mock, again, at the Center for China and Globalization, he laid out his three things of what he looked at in the year ahead. I think he said Iran is going to be a big one, Russia, Ukraine is going to be another big one, and then again, he very casually said the reunification of Taiwan, which I was just like, holy crap, there is nothing casual about the reunification (laughs) of Taiwan, if God forbid that should happen, and I say God forbid only in the context that will not happen peacefully and that will be incredibly disruptive. So as we have these massive geopolitical events that are going to take place next year, politics, economics, climate change, all of it. It's going to be a tumultuous year. COVID's not going to get any better. At least I don't think it will, based on what we know right now. How is Africa going to position itself in that? Well, you know, one one of the one of the I think in, in, in relation to COVID and then kind of wider issues, we we also have seen this week that the the, the FDA has, has has approved the first oral medication for COVID um, from Pfizer. I think um, you know, kind of once once there's a kind of a big rollout of of a pill that people can pop rather than a you know a vaccine that needs to be that has an expiration date and needs to be kept in a cold chain, that starts changing the the the, the COVID. You know, calculus in the global south. Um, I think one of one of the big issues that we, we're going to be seeing with COVID is not even not only the issues in relation to COVID itself, but the the, the question, the, the the decisions made by by governments, not only in Africa but but everywhere, in in relation to how how interventionists have to be to impose COVID protocols in on their populations. Um, you know, and 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 that I think is, is going to raise a lot of a, a lot of kind of like issues, like social issues in different. Countries, not least in the US and, and, and China, um, but yeah, like I, I really, yeah, I really agree with you. I, you know, kind of the, I guess the 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 thing is, the, the, there's always a question in my in my mind about whether whether a lot of external attention is necessarily a lot of external attention on Africa is necessarily always a good thing, um, or you know, kind of whether there's there's kind of spaces for African agency. When there isn't, when Africa isn't at the top of the headlines of the global headlines, um, you know, and I think that's kind of an open question. But it, it, it again, like so much depends on the vision of of African leaders, and you know, just as, just an example, um, you know, in, in South Africa um, the, recently, the, the it was announced that that Shell is gonna is gonna um, do these seismic tests to, to, to test for kind of natural gas and, and oil deposits um, off the coast of South Africa. It's ex- incredibly unpopular because it, it is directly impacting on, on whale breeding grounds and um, off the coast of South Africa that are crucial to, to South African tourism. You know, kind of South Africa makes a lot of money from people touring and seeing whales. Um, and, you know, we already, you know, so, so, so that, that that measure was was defeated by South African court, like a measure, a measure to, to, to try and stop it was defeated. It's going ahead. And in response, the one, like the, the, the minister, keep in mind, this is this is a person who was personally involved in a decolonization struggle in, in, in South Africa, 
called the the people who are opposed to shell like colonial forces um you know so so this is a kind of level of vision one has among african leaders frequently um and so you know i'm not super optimistic but at the same time we're also seeing very interesting kind of green shoots in relation to to other kinds of African decision making, like for example, this the story which which I think which we cover we we covered. I I didn't see almost anyone else covering it, and I think it's really consequential. Is this deal that was was made between between a Rwandan company um, to to export um, dried chili peppers to to China, and and it's it's done hundred million dollar deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. In relation with it, like it's made with the provincial government in China, and then they're leasing the land in Zimbabwe. So it's that that combination of like provincial government in China making a deal with 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 an African producer who then leases and trades with another African country. That dynamic is potentially really a game changer, you know. Um, and it has potential, the real real kind of potential for interesting kind of development. And so those are the kind of things that that happen in the shadows with no one commenting on it. You know, kind of even as people talk about Africa, quote-unquote, you know, kind of left and right, you know, in, in, to prove whatever point they want to prove in a, in a kind of a new Cold War discourse, you know. So that's what I mean in terms of the stuff that's happening in the shadows might be more consequential than the discourse that's dominating, dominating the conversation. And also, let's take into account that next year is going to be a very political year in many of Africa's largest countries. There are presidential campaigns that will be underway in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, and Nigeria for elections in 2023. South Africa is going to have a vote in 2024, and the political seasons are going to ramp up quite a bit. One of the interesting points that Nsetse Wary made in our discussion on Seneca is the continuity of power in many of these countries with relations to their engagements with China. So that is one, and this is what we're seeing in the Congo. It was the Kabila administration that signed a lot of these shady loan deals uh, for Sicko means that the Chesekate administration went to revisit. How many of the loan agreements will a new administration in Kenya, for example, revisit? Or will a new administration in Nigeria take a different tact on Chinese borrowing there as well? That's something to keep in mind and expect that in the presidential campaigns, China will be an issue. Not necessarily a big issue, but we've seen in so many African presidential campaigns and large election campaigns, as was the case in Zambia this year, that Chinese loans were a way that opposition parties used to attack the incumbent administration. So that's something to keep an eye on. Okay, that was it. Those were our three issues in review. Our look forward, we're going to have a lot more look forward discussions coming up in January, again, with some of these great guests that we have on on, on the show. We just also want to take this time Uh, as we do every year, to express our sincere gratitude to you for listening and for supporting us and for subscribing to the newsletter, joining our Patreon community. We have a brand new newsletter, though, by the way. We now produce a weekly edition. You can go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. And if you don't want to get the daily edition, it's just too much. A lot of people told us that they can't take another email in their box. We then have responded to that by producing a PDF on Fridays that goes out, and you can get a summary of all of the best writing that all of our contributors are doing from across our network in the various cities now that we have editors. Uh, So if you want to get a weekly edition, I recommend you go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. And by the way, when you sign up for the weekly, you also get full access to the site as well. So you can get daily and you can get weekly. Also, next year, we will be launching our new French and Arabic services. That is very cool. We're so excited to introduce you to our editors who are going to be uh, leading those efforts. And the other thing which we're going to be doing is we're going to be start hosting a lot more live video and Twitter space discussions uh, with our new editors. And uh, Cobus is going to lead that initiative. So, Cobus, we have a lot to look forward to and a lot to be grateful for this year. Yes, so much. And uh, yeah, I just want to echo your thanks to Ev for all of the support throughout this year, all of our the engagement, the friendly comments, the you know the the people listening to the podcast. We're so 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 grateful. Like you know, we it's sometimes difficult to 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 forget, or you know, one one sometimes forgets that that they are actually people listening. You know, kind of because we we end up just like we we we've, we've done this for so many years. We've recorded, you know, thousands, like hundreds and hundreds of of episodes, and um, and you know, it's it's so incredible now to kind of get all to get this kind of response back 
you know, kind of from from a community and to see the community actually and and to engage with them in real in in, re, in real time. It's it's incredibly moving and really really humbling. Yeah. So we're grateful to all of that and we're grateful to your support. And if you'd like to continue to support us and the work that we're doing and all of the new team members that we're bringing on board, this kind of independent journalism is so important. It does not fund itself all the way. It needs your support. And so if you'd like to support us, the best way you could do that is by subscribing to the China Africa Project at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Subscriptions start at $7 a month for daily subscriptions, and they go to $15 a month uh, for, that's $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everybody else. And then we also have this weekly, but if that's not for you, we also have our Patreon community as well at patreon.com slash China Africa Project. So for Kobus Fen Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We want to wish you all a happy new year and a happy festive holiday season for you. And we're looking forward to seeing you in 2022 for another exciting year of China, Africa and China Global South coverage. Thanks so much for listening and for all your support. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Project.com.